I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a fascinating new book on the history of dispensationalism, and I talk a bit more about how to read biblical narratives. Well, I'm standing here in my study looking out on just the most gorgeous day that I can remember having here in West Michigan for at least like seven months. I left town about two weeks ago, and uh, when I left, it was like 32 degrees. I mean, spring has just not shown up here just yet, and now it's here. It is the most gorgeous day. Um, fresh, birds are everywhere. Chirping is starting to green up and bloom. Um, I know, I, I mean, I've been out of town, so I think the weather has been nice. Of course, the weather always gets nice in Western Michigan when I'm gone, but I get to enjoy this sunny day. I was uh, sitting out on the porch reading earlier, and it was just so relaxing and so totally comfortable. I'm loving it. I'm reading a uh, a book by Louis Menand uh, called The Free World, and it's about uh, the cultural f- uh, ferment in the post-war era. Basically, he talks about how the cultural center or the center of, of varieties of culture moved from Paris to New York um, in the post-war era. And from like 1945 to 1965, the United States was like the driver of culture globally, like in like high art, literature, visual arts, painting, um, philosophy, and so many other fields. And, and it's just a really fascinating book. I, I'm loving it. However, it's one of those books that, like so many of the ones I've been into recently, is just a thick tome. And it sits there on the coffee table. And even though I'm like 200 pages in, I look at the bookmark, it like mocks me from the coffee table. Like you will not conquer me. Uh, the bookmark is not even close to halfway through this book. Steve's reading it as well. And he said that he uh, sort of regards it like a college course. And it's just kind of taking it easy and reading it over time. And I may just need to see it as like a summer project. Um, it is a fascinating book. I'm I'm so enjoying it. Um, I feel like I'm riveted now. I, I had a hard time kind of grasping. I started it a couple months ago, got a little bit hung up when he started talking about Heidegger and quit. And then I started over again. I'm so glad I did. I've got some travel coming up here soon, and I think I might pick up another book that's a little lighter to read um, because I have my my collection of books that I have read like two thirds of the way through and then quit is getting a little bit too large. Um, Whenever I finish something, it feels like a a serious accomplishment. Anyway, that's what I'm reading these days. I uh, just got back into town. Last night, I flew from, uh, on Saturday, no, Sunday, I flew from London to Chicago and then drove back uh, here to Michigan. Um, A week and a half ago, I left on a Thursday, and that morning, I I, I don't know how I missed this. I'm not a Royals watcher, so of of course I missed it. I knew King uh, Charles was going to be anointed or inaugurated or crowned king of England, uh, 
King Charles III. I knew that was happening at some point. I had no idea that it was happening last Saturday when Steve and I were going to be in London. So we were there from Friday to Sunday and um, had a blast, hit a couple of museums and just more or less wandered around town, eating good food and just having some laughs. But on Thursday, we sat in a pub and watched the coronation with a bunch of locals, which was really fun, had some interesting conversations and just a total blast. It was kind of nice that so many Londoners were um, at the parade route, which gave us access to um, a very nice restaurant and a very quiet atmosphere for breakfast. My major goal anytime I travel to Britain is to have a cooked breakfast, either an English cooked breakfast or a Scottish cooked breakfast every morning. And um, there's got to be an associated plan to like get a lot of walking in because that um, that sort of uh, goal has bodily consequences. But additional... Um, additional mass be damned. I just love a, an English or a Scottish cooked breakfast. And I enjoyed all of that to the full. Um, last Monday, we went up to St. Andrew's, Scotland. My youngest son, Riley, is studying there for this year. He's a postgraduate student in ancient history and classics. And uh, he also had his friend Colby visiting. And I'd wondered like how that how will that go there's the four of us generally i am not comfortable with like world collision you know you bring two separate um friend groups together just because i'm socially anxious anyway i don't always know how that's going to go and uh it never goes badly it always goes great but I, I just wanted to make sure that that riley and i had a good chance to connect and we totally did and the four of us just had the absolute best time endless conversations um Riley's friend Colby is just a really interesting person, very inquisitive, um, sort of carries a conversation. And, and it was fun to watch Colby and Riley interact. They were uh, roommates and housemates for a couple of years during their undergraduate years in Seattle. Um, that was fun. Riley later told me he loved watching Steve and I interact, which was really cool. And the four of us just like had crazy, hilarious conversations and really interesting probing intellectual discussions and um, meaningful discussions about relationships and family dynamics and all the rest. It was just the absolute best time. Um, Riley and I were able to spend one full day together, just uh, him and me, and we had breakfast, took a long walk uh, along the coastal path right on, along the North Sea, um, came back for a few pints and just had the richest time of connection and rich conversation about so many things. And um, it was, it was just, I don't know. I, I figured we'd have a blast. I knew we'd have a good time. And, but you know, I just always want to have realistic expectations. And um, on my way back, I just, my heart was so full and um, just so grateful for the sweetest time. I am the winner of the DNA lottery in a lot of ways. Uh, just the family I was born into and um, my three children. Uh, it's the luck of the draw. 
with regard to, you know, emotional, psychological makeup in so many ways. Uh, I attribute nothing to my skillfulness in parenting with um, the great relationships I get to enjoy with my kids. I'm just so lucky. Uh, in March, was able to visit my daughter Maddie in Phoenix. In April, I visited Jake in Seattle, and now just coming off this visit with Riley, I, I, my, I, I'm just so grateful for these people that I get to be in their life, their lives, and they are in my life, and we're connected. Um, and it's just the best. They are, they are just the best part of my life, and I'm so grateful for that. Um. It was interesting. Just one interesting. I, this I've not been able to get this out of my head. When I say it, uh, I bet you will not be able to unsee it. Steve and I were talking about on one of our many conversations on a long walk, on, on long walks in the in the early mornings. Um, he was. We were talking about narcissism. He had read a. He had, he's read a few books on narcissism over the last year, and. Um, he was talking about one of the discussions in one of these books and um, a, di a discussion about sort of broad cultural narcissism. And he talked about how this one author just made the, the observation about how the, you know, the grill work in the, in the front of cars is um, are designed. They're, they're, they're designed to be aggressive. And, Ever since he made that comment, like I've not been able to unsee this, like in 85% of the cars that you look at, certainly the, the newer ones. Like if you look at cars of the 1970s and you look at the grill work or just the front, you know, the headlights and the whole front of the car, they're so kind of functional and unremarkable. But in the last, say just like the last three or four years, if you look at a car that was made in the last three or four years, just look at it head on. If the lights are on or off, doesn't matter. It looks angry, like the car looks angry, like the, it, it looks like the, the car has angry eyebrows and it, it looks like it has an aggressive face, like it's coming after you. It's just so wild. And ever since they made that comment, I can't, I can't not see it. And I just keep thinking, my goodness, this like um, all this cultural unrest and like political polarization is even being represented in our automobiles. My goodness, it's like a veritable age of anger, as Pankaj Mishra might put it. Not only is there just so much anger in our culture, there's anger as we look at cars. Seriously, as you're walking down the street or wherever you are, look at the fronts of cars and tell me if you do not see angry eyebrows. I don't think I'm just projecting. Um... This week is PJ week. It's the PJ championship. One of the, one of the four best weeks of the year. Uh, as it happens, I will be traveling, but I'm going to be doing everything I can to pay attention to how things develop. Um, I do have some downtime here and there. And so I'll be able to check in and watch some of the, some of the action. That'll be a lot of fun. As in every major golf um, uh, tournament, the storylines and the drama as the week unfolds are, are fun for me to follow and have been for the last, like, I don't know, 35 years or so as I just got into golf in high school. I've always loved following it. Um, let's see here. Oh, I just received, well, not just, but several weeks ago, I received my copy of the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters, the second edition that's just uh, come out with uh, IVP Academic. 
edited by Nijay Gupta, Scott McKnight, and Lynn Kohick. And um, I was so pleased and honored to be invited to contribute a couple of those articles. Um, was just staggered, really, uh, that they invited me to contribute the article on justification, which I was just really overwhelmed by that. When I was in seminary, uh, the first volume or the, the initial volume came out. This this is part of IVP Academics uh, reference series. They've done um, dictionaries. Uh, let me see here. Well, I don't have all of them. But in the New Testament, uh, the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, there's a couple Old Testament ones like Dictionary of Wisdom Literature, the Prophets. Um and there's a dictionary of like the uh, New Testament backgrounds covering sort of the intertestamental uh, early Jewish material. And these are just absolutely world-class works of, of biblical scholarship, sort of summarizing the current state of the question on, on a variety of topics. And it's, they're exhaustive. And um, when I was in seminary, the volume on the dictionary, the, the volume on Paul and his letters came out. And I use that for so many projects. Um, I remember reading the article on justification by Alistair McGrath and just thinking, my goodness, this is just such a refreshing take on things in so many ways and just such a, a cool-headed, um, um, sane analysis of, of the issue. And my research projects going back to 1997 have involved Pauline texts touching on the question of justification. And so I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I've always been frustrated that um, at the interpretive level of biblical texts, there's so much um, noise going on because of the, the theological discussion of justification. And I've always been frustrated that sort of like the historical question about justification and the biblical or the theological and dogmatic or the confessional um, varieties of schools of thought with regard to justification. I've always been frustrated that those discussions prevent like clear analysis of biblical texts. That's been a frustration of mine going back to the 90s when I started looking into this question. And Alistair McGrath's article was really helpful for me. And then, my goodness, I, now that I'm thinking of all these articles, Dan Reed's article on the powers and authorities was critical for me in my projects on Galatians and then my dissertation on Ephesians. Um, Scott Hafeman's um, article on triumph. I could just, I'm not going to just keep listing these out. Anyway, when I was invited to contribute a couple of articles, I just felt so honored and was worried that perhaps the editors had slipped and um, had lowered their standards inadvertently. But was so grateful. I did the article on flesh and cosmology and justification, those three articles, and I'm really grateful to be considered. And so I got my complimentary author's copy, and um, it's sitting there waiting for me to jump in for my next uh, project, which I need to get cracking on. Anyway, um, I don't have much more to say leading into this episode than this. As I've been reading as I've been reading this book over the last uh, couple of weeks on the history of dispensationalism, which I will recommend uh, in a minute, um, I've been just laughing because of my inability to not say in my head, dispensationalism. My, my friend Scott Peterson, uh, when we were in seminary, like 
my word, almost like 28 years ago, we were taught dispensationalism and, you know, there were some of us who just could never quite get our heads around it or never quite buy it. It just seemed a little bit too far-fetched and not quite all there. And um, I just remember in the hallway, Scott making a, a wisecrack. And it's one of those things that you hear once and it just sticks with you. So every time I say dispensationalism, I have to sort of consciously not say dispensationalism. Anyway, here we go. I want to tell you about a book. It's called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. Daniel G. Hummel is the author, and it's published by Erdman's. This book was an absolute blast to read, which might sound surprising about a book on dispensationalism, but I found it difficult to put down. On one hand, it's very personal. I was raised in a dispensational environment and was taught a dispensational system for reading the Bible while in seminary. On the other hand, Hummel manages to blend astonishingly deep research with a writing style that's impressively winsome and easy to follow. What is dispensationalism? It's an interpretive frame for understanding the whole sweep of the Bible. Its fundamental idea is a conception of dispensational time. That is, the unfolding stages of how God ruled creation from the beginning to the consummation in the end. It has so many complicated associated, associated ideas and sub-notions that it can get kind of overwhelming, which explains the dispensational proclivity from the very beginning for charts. Those familiar with this school of thought just might remember seeing these on a church wall or even in their home. There's so much that is just wonderful about this book, so I'll just touch on a handful of things that Hummel's work clarifies, at least for me. First, Hummel helpfully distinguishes between scholastic dispensationalism and pop dispensationalism. Scholastic dispensationalism refers to the careful tinkering on the overall interpretive scheme by scholars in seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary, Talbot Theological Seminary, later the Talbot School of Theology, and Grace Theological Seminary. Scholars at these institutions took their task seriously and were more or less embarrassed by what Hummel terms pop dispensationalism. While there was always a popularizing impulse in dispensational circles, the apocalyptic fervor unleashed by Hal Lindsey's work, The Late Great Planet Earth, in 1970, focused attention on the last days and how biblical prophecy could make sense of geopolitical events, something that scholastic dispensationalists carefully avoided. It popularized the notion of the rapture and fostered anxieties about what horrors might be set loose on the earth after Christians are taken up into heaven. Anyone traumatized by watching the film Thief in the Night, as I was as a five-year-old on a Sunday night in 1977, remembers those cultural anxieties all too well. This sole focus on last day speculation and rapture fantasies continued, of course, with the Left Behind series of novels, among a vast number of other cultural expressions. Second, the historic development of dispensationalism always had embedded within it an anti-established church impulse that powerfully shaped fundamentalism and evangelicalism. John Nelson Darby, the early initiator of what became dispensationalism, was anti-clerical and stood opposed to the established church in Ireland. As later new premillennialists, that's Hummel's term for early developers of what would become the dispensational system, as, as later new premillennialists in the late 19th century sought to form networks across denominational lines, 
Denominations were weakened, or at least popular preachers' loyalties to their denominations were tested. The payoff of all this is that it identified for me the historic roots of a major feature of contemporary evangelicalism. It is largely, if not almost entirely, non-denominational. Denominations seem to many evangelicals like a waste of time. Of course, since it's a movement of contradictions, evangelicalism is largely an institutional reality. Megachurches, mission organizations, and educational institutions. Evangelical culture is forever splitting with organizations and institutions with principled protestations about wanting to be organic and spontaneous workings of the spirit before then turning to build bigger organizations. Might as well be honest. Yeah, it's a big organization, but it's my big organization. The cynicism is mine, not Hummel's. Third, as I mentioned in a previous episode, Hummel's work clarified for me why it is that dispensationalists had so little interest in matters of social justice. First, there's the networking drive. Leaders sought to spread the teaching of the system through cultivating relationships across denominations and across regions of the country in the wake of the Civil War. And to build those big networks, leaders had to agree to avoid matters of disagreement, especially between churches in the North and those in the South. The conscious decision to avoid talking about the just treatment of formerly enslaved black people and to work for reparations set the trajectory for emerging evangelicalism to be opposed to social justice efforts, seeing them as divisive. Sound familiar? And this had a theological rationale too. Essential to dispensationalism is a dualism, a split between Israel as God's earthly people and the church as God's heavenly people. Near the end of history, the church, God's heavenly people, are taken home, while God's earthly people endure tribulation. Because the church is God's heavenly people, it should not trouble itself with earthly matters, pursuits like social justice, or working for systemic change to relieve suffering. Our only task is to save souls, to build the heavenly people of God. Matters of social justice, therefore, confuse the dispensations and the people of God. Again, the payoff for contemporary evangelicalism. There's a heritage that runs back a century and a half that has shaped the cultural ethos and the theological vision of evangelicalism to be comfortable with white supremacy and other forms of social injustice and to even formulate arguments in favor of such realities. What's interesting is that, as Hummel indicates, the historic black church in America has a strong eschatological outlook Just think of the spirituals that celebrate the coming of the Lord, the sweet chariot swinging low and coming to carry me home. But that future orientation is part of a vastly different spiritual vision, one that works for justice here and now while awaiting God's future kingdom. The dispensational conception, on the contrary, fosters a resistance to change, a defense of the social status quo. Dispensationalists in the 20th century saw themselves as theological conser- theologically conservative and explicitly stated that this theological conservatism went hand in hand with political, economic, and social conservatism. As this theological vision bled into evangelical culture, it naturally blended with Christian nationalism as white evangelical leaders throughout the 20th century saw the preservation of an American status quo as the best hope for the completion of the church's mission to evangelize globally. 
rather than seeing the Lord's imminent return as driving a mission of justice in the world, like in the New Testament, white evangelicals sought to reverse social progress in hopes of preserving a sort of traditional America that they saw as necessary for the health of the church. Hummel traces this impulse into the present, as pop dispensationalism shaped evangelicals to see a figure like Donald Trump as a hopeful one, indeed necessary to restore American greatness. Biblical interpretation and theological formulations have pretty massive implications. There's just so much to this wonderful book. It will not merely be of interest to those fascinated by the history of an obscure school of thought that has little influence on evangelicalism today. Hummel demonstrates how this highly technical theological outlook shaped a significant American subculture, fostering end-time speculation by Christian figures and shaping the political orientation of white evangelical Christians. Hummel's work is an important contribution to the study of, of American religious history, and I'm grateful for his impressive research and accessible writing style. The book is The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. Daniel G. Hummel is the author and is published by Erdman's. Get it from an independent bookstore. So in the previous episode of this intermittently released high-quality podcast, I started talking about reading biblical narratives. And uh, as I've said before, in this uh, fourth season of this podcast, I'm not um, diving deep into sort of how to study the Bible and the mechanical ways of doing that, but I'm just kind of dancing around that subject, talking about various ways of engaging with Christian scripture and reading biblical texts. So I thought I would uh, talk about a handful of things to sort of just take note of in reading biblical narratives. Keep in mind um, the selection and arrangement of events in, in reading biblical narratives. And what I mean by that is biblical narratives don't tell us everything about people or events or places or whatever. They only tell us certain things. They select what they're going to be saying. And I think that there's a lot, um, there are loads of implications of that. Um, first of all, if we're thinking as modern historians, we might say they're incomplete. They don't give a, like, say, in reference to the Gospels. Um, apart from Luke's mention of Jesus when he's 12, there is so little information. When Luke gives an account of Paul, there are massive gaps. There, there I mean, from the time of Paul's conversion um, until an episode that happens three years later, there's like an almost, uh, goodness, about like a 10-year gap. Like, what's Paul doing for that decade? is incomplete. Well, biblical narrators have reasons for why they tell us what they tell us, and they have reasons for why they don't tell us what they don't tell us. Um, so let's be careful not to think about biblical texts as if these are modern historical writers. Uh, we can inquire why these details are mentioned. What do these texts want us to know and understand about certain characters or events? And what do they do they not mind that we don't know? What are they foregrounding? What are they, what are they sort of um, setting before us? And I think it's important that we have, <clears throat> that we sort of are aware of certain characters, places, events, or whatever, that we have imaginations that are constrained by what biblical authors give us without getting too fanciful. 
we can easily overinterpret narratives, um, putting in a lot more detail than we actually find there. I mean, we love these kind of character studies and, and sort of speculating and making connections across biblical texts and wondering if if this you know servant over here is like this other servant over over there all in the interest of kind of making a good bible study or a good sermon or a good devotional something that will just really touch us or whatever focus on what's said and be be constrained and disciplined by the narrative um i mean narratives are meant in some ways to kind of provoke our imaginations but i think we can easily just get fanciful and you know um end up reading biblical characters as if they are just like us, um, seeking to sort of warm their devotional, warm the, devo the devotional coals in the fireplace of their heart, just like that, you know, just like we try to do. If it's not in there, don't put it in there. Just thinking about the woman in John 4, the woman at the well, uh, that character is very often portrayed as in some way uh, socially shamed because um, perhaps she's an adulteress. That's completely unfair to that character. That is never hinted at. It's never mentioned in that text. Um, oh, Janine Brown in her book. Oh, where is it? No. Janine Brown has a book on the Gospels that's somewhere on my bookshelf, and I can't quite see where it is. Look up Janine Brown on the Gospels in the New Testament. I'm delaying. I still can't find it. She has an excellent discussion of that text, as does Lynn Kohick in her book, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, a brilliant uh, discussion of that text, demonstrating that there are all kinds of interpretive possibilities if we just attend well to the details that John gives us and don't put other stuff in there. Um, yeah, we are... Uh, those kind of readings of texts like that uh, reveal sort of patriarchal um, prejudices and perhaps an over-sexualized imagination on our part, rather than um, John portraying some kind of socially shamed woman in the first century. Same is true with the woman in uh, Mark 14, the woman who breaks the jar. Um, in fact, that's a really fascinating um that's a really fascinating study. Each of the four Gospels have an account that sounds really interestingly similar. And um, if you send me an email, I can send you uh, a handout that I used in, in class on Jesus and the Gospels, um, in which I set those four episodes next to each other um, in, in a document and just gave students like 10 minutes to read through the details in those texts and then did some reflection on how it is that we've sort of taken one detail from one of the Gospels and sort of read that into all the other Gospel accounts. And the four accounts might be actually different people. Um, it's just interesting that the different Gospel writers are doing something different uh, in each of their, in each of the accounts that they give. And it's, it's inappropriate for us to fill in details in other accounts that those authors don't give us. For example, if it's the case that Luke, in telling an account of a woman, uh, mentions um, some kind of social shame, when I read Mark's account, and Mark does not indicate that, it's not fair for me to talk about the account in Mark as if that detail needs to be supplied. 
That's what I'm trying to get at. Biblical authors put in details or they leave out details. And, and we have to have, we have to be disciplined by those details that is constrained by them, limited by them, and not let our imaginations run wild. Also, biblical authors sequence events and episodes to tell us stuff. They mash things together to sort of expand meaning. For example, in uh, Mark chapter 8, we get this really bizarre, if you just pull out the episode on its own, you just like, what the heck happened here? Where um, there's a blind man brought to Jesus, and uh, Jesus makes an attempt to heal him, and he says, open your eyes. What do you see? And he says, I'm, I, I see people walking around like trees. So Jesus makes another attempt and the man's sight is fully restored. And it's like, man, if you just read that episode on, on its own, you're like, my goodness, that's a, does, did Jesus, you know, not have a full Scottish breakfast this morning? Just didn't have it. Was he just off? He's not in the zone. Um, what happened there, Jesus? Just not, not with it today. Um, no, there's something really critical happening there. Right after that happens, um, Jesus has a conversation with the disciples in which he asks, who are people saying that I am? And then, um, he asks, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, so it's like Peter sort of sees, he gets it a little bit. His sight is kind of restored. Then Jesus tells him that he's going to Jerusalem to die, and Peter objects. He objects to that. And so what's happening there is that Peter sort of gets it, but he's still in need of having his vision restored. And um, that, that episode is actually doing a whole lot more work than just that. But just to make the point here, um, authors will set episodes next to each other that when you read them together or when you read a number of episodes in sequence, they're adding meaning. Meaning is building over time, which is yet another reason why we should take narratives as wholes, whole, um, whole texts, rather than kind of parachuting in for an episode, making a sermon about it or trying to make meaning of it and then jumping back out again. Same is true with the curse of the fig tree in Matthew and in Mark. When you read that uh in the flow of those narratives, you see that Jesus didn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed that morning and a fig tree is going to get it. You take it out on the, you know, the, the flora. That's not what's happening. There's Jesus um, speaks judgment against the city in those contexts. And then he sort of performs it as the God of Israel often showed up um, in context where he was examining Israel's fruit and then passed judgment. Also, this, uh, when you read Luke 15, it's very easy when we read with a devotional mindset to, to read um, Luke 15 and the parable, uh, quote unquote, the parable of the prodigal son, and not understand that, that uh, Luke 15 as a whole is sort of one whole unit. And what happens in the first couple of verses there, when the Pharisees are grumbling, that's a great word, grum, they're grumbling. They're grumbling at Jesus because he's welcoming sinners and eating with them. And so um, Luke has Jesus relay a series of little episodes that talk about celebrations. 
And then he tells the, the third parable is one whole parable. It's the parable of the angry older brother. It's one whole parable where this prodigal son runs off. He's warmly welcomed. And then the, uh, and then the father has to have a conversation with the angry older brother based on his response. He's grumbling like the Pharisees at the beginning. And so though that sequence of parables build and they all have to do um, with what happens at the very beginning. That is just to say, pay very close attention to the sequencing, the selection and the sequencing of events. Um, because authors will mash things together to sort of build and compound meaning. Um, I was thinking, of, I, I always think of the, the way that Wes Anderson does this in his films. Um, in Royal Tenenbaums, um, Richie finds something out about, oh, oh no, he asks Margot a question about something that's going on. And, oh no, is that, the, is that how it goes? Anyway, there's a moment of revelation in the, in the cemetery between Richie and Margot. And at the very same time, a pack of cigarettes drops out of Margot's coat, falling on the ground. And Richie says, you just dropped your cigarettes. And she goes, those aren't mine. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they just fell out of your pocket. Um, because nobody knows that Margot for years has been a smoker. She's kept it secret. And at the very same time as um, as Richie's love for Margot is being revealed, something about Margot is being revealed to Richie. So he's got those kind of placed next to each other. Um, yeah, Wes Anderson does that a lot. It also, actually in the very same film, in kind of a funny scene, um, oh, what's his name? Raleigh. Raleigh, Margot's husband, um, is upset because she's leaving and wants to go back and move in with her mother. And Raleigh's very upset about this. And he says, you don't really love me, do you? And she has a great response. And she says, I do kind of. And um, it's like, he doesn't get it. He's this psychoanalyst and, but, you know, designed to, I mean, trained to study the human brain and soul and inner world, but he can't, he's been unable to figure out what's going on between him and his wife. I mean, it's just so obvious, but he can't get it. And at the same moment, um, Raleigh's um, analyzand, the person he's analyzing, um, Dudley is standing next to this cab that's like completely rusted out and falling apart. And this sort of um, obtuse kind of a person stands there and points to the car and says, this car has a rust spot in it. And there's another one there, another one there. Anyway, two people pointing out what is really obvious, but bringing those two things together, they're mutually interpreting, which is just what biblical authors do. Pay attention to what's happening as narratives unfold. Um, also, I just this just came to mind. In uh, Punch Drunk Love, which is such a great film, I gotta watch that again. Uh, P.T. Anderson film in Punch Drunk Love, the two main characters, their their um, their lives are chaotic, and they both are chaotic people, and um, they sort of manage to find each other. And what's interesting is that every time the two characters, it's just you know the film kind of just progresses normally, 
But every time the two characters get in proximity with each other and kind of come together to have a conversation, something chaotic happens. Like the music in the film is just way too loud or someone's playing an instrument too loudly. Or the one time they're in the factory, uh, there's a massive crash behind them. And it's just like scenes of chaos surround these two characters. And it's like, it's almost like when the two characters come together in those moments, they're kind of most dialed into each other. Anyway, just interesting. Filmmakers have ways of doing this. Gospel writers have ways of doing this. Old Testament narrative composers have ways of doing these very same kinds of things. So pay attention to the selection and arrangement events of events. Uh, pay attention also to how time works, um, to the compression of time. That is, a ton of stuff might happen in a very short period of time. That happens in each of the Gospels. Um, the final portion of each of the Gospels, like the passion narratives, as they're called, um, when Jesus is betrayed, meets with his disciples, trial, uh, torture, crucifixion, um, a possible resurrection account, and appearance to disciples, and all that kind of stuff. All of those things happen within just three or four days. But each of them takes up sizable portions of each of the four Gospels. And the rest of Jesus's life is like in the rest of it. So obviously, each Gospel writer has to cover a ton of material, and they tend to give summary accounts. Like, it's almost the case that Jesus's whole ministry happens in Mark 1. And then a bunch of stuff you know, happens within a very short amount of time. And then you get up to like the sending of the disciples and then back um, a number of months pass is probably, I don't know how much time has passed, but it's just that period of time has just gone over very briefly. Um, you can also sort of pay attention to how, um, how each narrative is paced. It's well known that Mark uses the term immediately, constantly. Like he's got this fast-paced gospel account. It's it's kind of like punch drunk love as a gospel. It's just chaotic. It's way too fast. And it's not only too fast, but it's herky-jerky in its pace. So several times Mark slows down his pace. And when he slows it down, like pay close attention. Something significant is going to happen. And what I mean by that is at least three or four times, um, you know, Mark will be like, and, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this. And then turning around and looking at all of them, he said, when Mark piles up those kind of words, he's slowing things down. It's kind of like a, if you're thinking in terms of film, it's like a visual close up. Like, check this out. It's almost like slow motion. This is really important that you get this. This is going to be key to everything. Um, John's pacing is almost entirely different than Mark's. And Matthew is very much like John. These long, ponderous dialogues. It's like if you think about John's gospel, there's almost not much in it. There's just a, like a sequence of long conversations. Mark does his work, or sorry, John does his work differently than Mark and Matthew and Luke. And the pacing of those, um, because they're so long, it, it affects the pace of how the gospel proceeds. Um, I mentioned earlier the gap in how uh, Luke talks about Paul. 
Um, depending on how you do the dating of Paul's life, and I'm not terribly concerned about how all of that unfolds necessarily historically. But um, when Luke reports Paul's conversion in um, chapter 9, he gets to about, oh, I didn't write down the verse, maybe like verse 24 or so, 25. And he, ter- he he transitions and says, now when Paul went to Jerusalem, and it's like, there's probably a three-year gap in there where Luke talks about some stuff that Paul did, but a lot of the other stuff was not necessarily important, but this episode is really critical. Interesting. Why does he not tell us about those things? Are the, Why are they not important? Are they not important? They're perhaps not, to Luke anyway, since he doesn't tell us about them. I may have mentioned this before, but focus on how, how um, biblical authors use space. Uh, when you read accounts, pay attention to the details that biblical authors give um, as far as where they situate characters. Are characters sitting? Are they standing up? Is there a great distance between them? How do they close that distance? Or do they? Where do, where do people move? It's really interesting in uh, 1 Samuel 17 when um, <clears throat> people bring David to meet Saul and um, David's brother start accusing him um, of just wanting to be curious about what's happening on the war front. And David turns around. He basically turns his back on them. Like, I'm not even going to dignify what you guys are saying. I'm not even going to answer this. He's solely focused on, you know, this giant warrior um, insulting the God of Israel and Israel. And that's that's the only problem that David sees in that chapter. He's not worried about anything else. So it's really interesting how um, when the brothers try to distract David, he, he turns his back on them, which is a very significant move. Uh, another great example is the um, the synagogue episode in Mark 3, 1 to 6, where um, there's this man born with a withered hand. And uh, it's not the case that Jesus just says, like, you know, come here. He calls him, like, come up here. Like, he is situated at the back with his back to the wall of the synagogue, which is just so resonant of what has happened um, with the Pharisees kind of being more or less in charge of synagogues in, in the Jewish culture of that time. Um, under their care, this person has been marginalized. He's been put to the back. And Jesus is always drawing marginalized figures into the middle, like come up here into the center draws him right into the middle, and then does what he does with the man right in front of all the Pharisees. It's sort of a, in a nutshell, what is what, what has happened to the people of God and what Jesus is doing among the people of God. So, so rich with implications for Christian communities today, especially how we tend to fall into patterns of marginalization Um completely well-meaning, at least we tell ourselves, using scripture, using biblical reasoning, just like the Pharisees did. They're very human. They were very concerned with the glory of God and the centrality of scripture and biblical authority and all that kind of stuff. And they were marginalizing people that 
Jesus wanted centralized. It's just it's if there's if there's a picture of um, what white conservative evangelicalism has become, it's that, and uh, Christian communities in general, all Christian communities fall into that. That heritage is just the one uh, with which I'm most familiar. Um, it's easy to push people to the margins and to imagine that we are serving God by cutting people off who don't measure up. And Jesus is always doing the absolute opposite. Man, Steve and I were talking about this last week. It's it's just staggering. I mean, the, the heritage that we share, it would be one thing if we could identify um, ways that um, the Christian culture that we participated in for some time, if we could imagine, if, if we could identify ways that that we missed it, like we, we you know, Jesus says to do this, but we, we just kind of, we miss the mark quite a bit. We just sort of, we go for it, but we miss the mark. Um, what is staggering is to recognize that throughout the long history of Christianity in America, we have so often not missed it, but done the opposite. Like we are doing the things in scripture that scripture condemns and thinking that we're obeying scripture. And um, I don't want to just lob bombs at others. That's why I'm saying we. We fall into that pattern. Goodness. Um, oh, I was thinking about the narrative in Mark uh, chapter 2 when, and I, I just think it's absolutely fascinating to think about this, you know, that just because I've, I've sort of been trained to read biblical narratives in terms of the picture Bible that I inherited when I was like five, just after being traumatized by Thief in the Night, in fact, before that, I, I had a picture Bible, and um, in, the, in the mornings, my dad would lead my sisters and me in um, uh, a Bible story and devotion and prayer, and he would open up the picture Bible, and it was a very peaceful scene um, in Mark chapter 2 of the man being lowered through the roof, and the look on everybody's face was so serene, and the man was lying on the mat being lowered down in front of Jesus, you know, with his Caucasian look, his light brown hair, California surfer Jesus. And uh, I was you know, reading that episode and thinking through the construction of, of, um, of homes in Palestine, Israel, the land, whatever we, we call it. In the first century, it's like, and then thinking about like being a homeowner, that is a punch drunk love scene. That's a pure chaos. That's insane what's happening there. That you've got this crowded house of agitated, uncomfortable people. And then it is so packed that nobody can even get in. And that's a small space. Like that's probably around the space of the study that I'm in right now, which is like what? Like 12 feet by 18 feet. Um and then having this this thatched roof just ripped open and like dirt and you know grass and hay and whatever mud like all kinds of garbage falling on people and like in their eye they try to look up and it's falling in their eyes it's, it's like the most chaotic scene and this poor guy it's not like they cut a hole that was like three feet by six feet to perfectly lower him down i mean he's probably banging his head and people are trying to like either catch him or tell him, shove him back up or arguing with each other. 
it's pure chaos. And, and it's completely claustrophobic. Nobody can move and they're having, now they can't breathe and people are coughing. Anyway, just, this, this is, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I really resist watching visual depictions of biblical scenes. Like the, um, oh, is it called The Chosen? There's a series, I don't know what it is exactly. Um, even watching, um, what was that Mel Brooks film your passion of i can't remember whatever the mel brooks film was years ago or um the willem dafoe film before that i just cannot bring myself to watch like jesus films or i mean even the ten commandments the classical um was it demille made that one decades ago because i i think that these affect our imaginations in in ways that either they're either tidied up or they're they don't capture the drama of what's happening i don't i don't i don't have a principled objection. I just resist that because I, um, having my imagination so perverted by my childhood picture Bible. And of course, you know, Moody press had no intention of doing that. They were just trying to be helpful. Um, but I think our imaginations can get misdirected so that we don't actually see what a biblical author might, might be wanting to portray. And we, we see what we choose to see. Or like what we prefer to see or what's easier for us or what's tidier for us. Or again, what makes for a sweeter, more meaningful, more earnest devotion or a sermon that will move people, um, lending itself to the perfect illustration I've been working on for months and months, whatever. Not trying to be too cynical. I just think as interpreters, we've got to be very careful um, to have imaginations that are that are provoked and provocable by the details in the biblical narrative, but that go in the right direction um, in ways that are historically faithful and reliable, and in ways that are faithful to the details that are given to us in texts. All right, I imagined doing um, only two parts on sort of engaging with biblical narratives, enjoying biblical narratives, reading biblical narratives. But I'm going to park it there, and it'll be a little while, be a couple of weeks before I get back um, traveling out west. And then I'm traveling to the east to visit my high school buddy, Sean, in D.C., which will be a total blast. Um, I've got like three more weeks of, of travel in this wild and woolly year or year and a half of transition in my life. And then I'll settle down a bit. So intermittent high quality podcasts for some time and then we'll settle in and be a bit more responsible. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. <laughs>